Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about The Green Knight and I'm happy to be joined by two guests for this one, Elijah Howard. Elijah, what's up? Hey man, happy to be here as always. And returning to talk about his second David Lowry movie with us, it's Ben Lubin. Ben, how's it going? Always a pleasure. Yeah, so The Green Knight is the newest movie, as I mentioned, from writer-director David Lowry. It uh, was originally slated to be a summer 2020 release, and uh, like a lot of movies, got delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But uh, A24 held this one to actually make it an in-theater release, so uh, they held it all the way to summer of 2021. And uh, here we are now to talk about it. It's uh, an adaptation from a 14th century poem, Sir Gowan in The Green Knight, by an anonymous author, and it tells the story of Gowan, a, or in sometimes referred to within the movie as Sir Gowan, who is the nephew of King Arthur, who is, you know, uh, kind of just trying to find his way in life, doesn't really have a, a secure position in the court. And even though his uh, his uncle seems to kind of want him to uh, step up and uh, kind of play a bigger role in the community. And one day when around Christmas, when they are at a big feast, a, uh, a, a mysterious uh, green knight who seems to be kind of half man and half tree uh, barges into the court and uh, challenges everyone there to a game where if any of them can uh, land a blow of sorts on him, they win his fancy axe. However, they have to come to a green chapel the following Christmas and receive an equal wound from him. The the knight takes a uh, different approach than Gowan is expecting and kind of just seems to give himself up. It confuses Gowan and he beheads the knight who then picks up his head and says, all right, well, you got to come see me in a year. And Gowan, who I should note is played by Dev Patel, has to kind of uh, think about the uh, what 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 lies ahead for him over the next coming year, and then his uncle informs him, "Well, nope, that was more than a game. You really need to go see what awaits for you on there." And then he uh, embarks on a trek, and that is where we follow him for most of the runtime of this film. Uh, guys, we were uh, I don't even remember why because this this movie had we known about it for a really long time, and I honestly don't even remember how it, we first started talking about it. But we talked about doing the podcast, the the three of us for since before the pandemic uh that's how long we've been talked about this and uh ben and i obviously talked about the old man and the gun and uh really liked that movie a couple years ago and i know ben is a big fan of a ghost story i'm guessing elijah is too i've never talked about that movie with you elijah it was my it was my number one film for 2017 up until the final week of the year when i saw phantom thread and it got beat out but it held that slot for like eight months. <laughs> the, the reason I smiled as soon as you said that is I know for a fact Elijah loves Lowry even more than I do. Oh, OK. So possible. I, yeah. I, yeah. So it might have just been the log line combined with the, 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 the filmmaker that made us all like kind of talk about this movie and think, all right, well, looking forward to doing this together. And it just ended up being quite the weight. Uh, so I, I didn't realize you were that big of a David Lowry fan overall. I just had some memory of you really liking ghost stories. So that makes sense. So knowing all that and knowing the source material, which I'm going to go to you first, Elijah, because I know Ben seemed to think that you might even have uh, you have a fairly deep knowledge of it. Um, what excited you about this movie and knowing that a filmmaker you really liked was going to tackle this subject matter? Like wh what possibilities did that kind of conjure in your mind? And uh, did this movie kind of live up to that hype for you? Yeah, I mean, I it's it was like, so I I mean, obviously been waiting for this movie for over a year. But for me, it was actually closer to like two and a half years because I remember following, I followed David Lowry on Instagram and I remember seeing the production photos, you know, like set photos from, uh, you know, Cartier Castle and all the places that they filmed, uh, in the UK and just being like, Oh my God, this is like, uh, like right up my alley. But you know, for me, 
it was kind of a sense of like wonder because this guy has got so much range. Like you look at his career and you've got things like a ghost story, which, you know, it's an esoteric slow paced, uh, you know, ethereal drama film. And you compare it to something like uh, Pete's dragon, which is one of the better Disney live action remakes. I think it might be my favorite. Very high bar. Yeah, right. <laughs> I really yeah. like Pete's Dragon though. Like, I, I I really dug that movie actually. Right, but that ultimately a film that's very different from a ghost story, um, at least in execution. And so to know that he was tackling a story that uh, could be done either way. I mean, I could have seen him making Green Knight entirely like a ghost story, just a a, a very slow paced, very deliberate film. Or it could have turned out more like Pete's Dragon and been more of a, uh, I don't hate, I hesitate to say a commercial product, but something that's, you know, more fun for the whole family kind of thing. Um, and so it was, it, you know, for me, the exciting part was just not knowing at all what this movie was going to turn out to be like because of, you know, how, how just the possibilities of what I know Lowry could accomplish. So, well, and what did you ultimately think? I I thought it was amazing i mean i think it you know it rode that line so well because i think i went into it thinking well it's going to be like pete's dragon or it's going to be like a ghost story i didn't think that there was a way that you could make both of those things work together and it it was it's a film that has so much so much on its mind and so much you know so much to say so much to critique about it source material all of those things together but it's still a film that's that is fantastical and it's still a film that feels uh feels otherworldly it feels transportive uh, it feels you know like it's a departure from the every you know an everyday kind of drama um and so just the the fact that it was able to split that difference and and be the kind of film that it was was on the surface amazing and then obviously we'll we have plenty to talk about about you know all the things that this movie does right uh, in my opinion in regards to the source material, everything it does right in regards to shirking the source material and doing new things. Um, and uh, I'm excited to talk about it because of all that. But yeah, I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was excellent. Ben, what was like, what was your big takeaway? Cause I mean, I knew, I knew you were pretty, uh, you were anticipating this movie a lot and, had a, and you probably had pretty high expectations. Yeah. I mean, so one thing I actually want to circle back to from our old man in the, the gun podcast Um, I remember towards the end, you asked me what I wanted to see or what I was expecting from Lowry next. I said, what do you what what do you want to see him do next? And you said, I want him to do whatever he wants to do next. Exactly that. If you look at his last few movies, I mean, there's clearly a very kind of imaginative, like creative mind at work. But one of the things that is so exciting about Lowry for me is I don't get the sense that like his next film is going to look like the one that came before it. I'm excited. Like he's someone who is continuously trying new things. And that's what I wanted out of. I want him to be doing with the Green Knight. And that is something that he absolutely delivered on. I think with this movie specifically, though, I'm less connected to Arthur, like Arthur Anya specifically and more connected to mythology as a whole. Like I like I like when I was a kid, my dad would read me like Greek mythology before I knew how to read it's always something I've been like really connected to, not just the stories themselves, but the idea of myth as something grander, sub- more sublime, just larger um, in a way that is, is both 
something we can be personally connected to and kind of expounds on the world around us, but is also something that like goes beyond the reality of the world as we see it. Myth, there's a quality of myth that isn't just kind of the characters, the stories themselves. It's something that you can't quite put your finger on. And it's something that I think has been lacking from a lot of kind of film adaptations of myth. Like the one, the, the movie I always go to as the biggest exception is Pasolini's Medea, where there is just this quality of the mythic quality of something both tangible and otherworldly about the way the movie depicts myth that I think almost no other movie is really captured. And I think The Green Knight really did a good job of capturing that quality. And because we do think of King Arthur as fantasy but it is one of the closest things we have to kind of like western european mythology and i think it's and that's something i kind of do want to get into later because one of the interesting things about kind of arthur is the idea that it is something both tangibly historical and deeply fantastical right. um but one of the things i loved about this movie in particular is the way it made the world feel wondrous and sublime and mythic and all of these amazing things but it didn't really kind of feel the need to remark on that otherworldliness. Like it never really kind of like what there, there's a moment in the movie where we see kind of the giants walking by mm-hmm. and we don't kind of get the moment of, Oh, we are real people seeing this wondrous thing. It just felt like this is part of the texture of the world that these characters inhabit. It's wonderful and mythic and strange, but it also just feels natural to the, to the world that, of the movies we've grown to understand it. And that's a quality that I think is incredibly hard to pull off, but I thought this movie did very well. So I was just going to say, kind of long story short, I absolutely loved it. And I, there's a whole lot to talk about with it, but. Yeah, and I'm. it's funny you mentioned like naturalism, because I, I mean, I obviously wouldn't have known to phrase it the way you just did, but like the big thing I was thinking about as I was watching it, because one, I'm probably not well that well-versed in any of the source material to the extent Elijah is, and I don't know much about Greek mythology either, or any kind of mythology. Uh, but I kind of had the, th- and I, so I was kind of a little worried going in. I was still kind of excited because like everyone that I, every, everything I'd seen, all, all the word was very positive and I liked David Lowry and I was like, I'm excited for this, but I'm also worried like I might find it a little inaccessible maybe just because of that. And one, one thing I, I, I that really kind of grabbed me about it was that like one, not only did I not know very much about the source material, I, there was also way less action than I was expecting, which again, I want to say I liked the movie. It's just kind of the way I've seen it marketed a little bit and what I, I didn't watch the trailer many times, but I, I, in my head, I kind of assumed there was going to be more action. So if you told me going in, there wasn't going to be that much action. And I'm you're not even really know all. You're not going to totally clearly know the motivations of the, your main character for a lot of the movie either. I don't know if you really know exactly what's on his mind or what he's hoping to get out of this trek at different points. Like it felt like it was kind of unknowing in that certain way for parts of it to me. I was just wondering what is he thinking at this point? What is he exactly hoping to get uh, at this point in the story? And like you kind of it, it becomes a little clear as it goes on. But it was a little unclear to me. So it was like kind of unknowable in certain ways, but I never at any point found it inaccessible, which was like what I was really worried about. And I think it, to some point, maybe it was just because it did feel uh, fairly natural and grounded in like a lot of the uh, a lot of the stuff that like I imagine was going through his head. I don't know exactly what was going through Gowan's head at any point, but I knew it could have been any number of things. And a lot of those things, whether or not it just be all the themes people have talked about about this movie already, whether it just be honor, pride, masculinity, all of those things, I was still feeling all of that and imagining everything that could be going through his mind, even if I wasn't totally in his head 
as you might be with certain characters in certain movies. And I was like, I think that's why I felt so connected to this movie, even if like I felt like I knew less than like maybe some people might know going in about the source material and thus get even more out of it than I did. I was pretty taken with it and engaged throughout anyway. I mean, it does. I, I think personally, I felt uh, Gawain's motivation was, for me at least, was pretty clear throughout. I mean, this entire quest, this entire journey in the movie, it is about him kind of just coming to understand who he is as a man and as a knight and as he. I, I think the movie kind of treats him almost as a, a mass of clay at the beginning of the movie. And I think we see all of these external forces that are almost kind of trying to shape him into something in particular. And I think the idea of this this quest that he's going on, it's his attempt to kind of work out for himself what exactly he wants to become. Um, and I, one thing I really want to talk about this movie, like talk about with this movie, is the way it treats kind of almost kind of the masculine pressures of like chivalric society. Like what the one thing I absolutely loved was the way it treated kind of his initial encounter with the Green Knight. And it plays it so specifically as him actively choosing to be kind of the like the warrior knight by chopping off the Green Knight's head, which is something that there is no real reason for him to do. Mm -hmm. As is explained to him, it is it's a game. He, he can poke could, him he can poke him on the arm and get one shot in and that could be yeah, it. But we've already had this moment of him almost realizing to himself he has no great story. And in that moment, it's he I kind of felt that he was almost compelled by the pressures of this kind of warrior knight society to kind of embody that and chop off the head of this like strange and fantastic beast thing. And that ultimately is kind of what sends him down this almost fatalist road for the rest of the movie. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, to build on that, when I say, you know, that this movie interrogates the source material in a very clever way, that's kind of what I mean. Um, because, you know, if, if you read a lot of Arthuriana and you read, especially, especially the matter of Britain stuff that was written in middle English by, uh, you know, English, uh, authors, Beheading people is very common. Uh, it just kind of gets tossed around like candy. Like, you know, there's there's scenes in, you know, like the, the, the story of Yvaine and the story of, you know, Lancelot, where it's just like people getting beheaded left and right. Like, it's a very, it's, it's very tropey within Arthuriana. And it's presented in the source material with no context. It's like the, like, that's the way that knights behave. Like, you know, they get a challenge to chop somebody's head off. So I really liked, you know, like like Ben pointed out, how much of an interrogation this is of the source material in just that one scene alone, right? Where he's presented with this opportunity and in the source material in Sir, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, there's no hesitation. There's no... Uh, there's no, there's no window dressing. And obviously there, there can't be too much because it's a, it's a poem, but, you know, in, in the story, going just chops the green knight's head off in the movie. We actually get a, an interrogation of that. We get, uh, you know, this sense of conflict, which is not present in the original story and, and brings a whole new dimension to it by looking at what that trope means, what the constant trope of people getting beheaded 
in Arthuriana actually represents. And like Ben said, it's this kind of, you know, and I'm sure we will talk about this at several points, but this idea of, you know, the, the, the toxic masculinity of chivalry and how, you know, you're taking this quote unquote romantic trait and showing how it's, it's got some flaws to it, shall we say. <laughs> so what do you think about its depiction of Arthur then? Cause it's like, I don't know if he's presented as necessarily like a toxic character uh, per se, even though he's the one encouraging him to like, eventually have to go on this mission well wow oh uh, there's a lot so <laughs> lots to a lot to say about that uh first of all they never call him king arthur it's and true i, yeah. I, I want to make a point of that they never call him king arthur they never call the queen guinevere um there there is no there's no named characters in the entire movie besides going and um you know there, that's there's a whole other angle to the you know to that as looking at this movie in relation to the source material. But I think this, this, this portrayal of, uh, of, you know, quote unquote, Arthur of the King was fantastic. And it it blended so many elements of, uh, of matter of Britain's source materials looking at, uh, you know, if you look at um, like Percival and Galahad, you have the Fisher King in those stories, who is this, this kind of unnamed, a king figure that the knights meet who is broken. He's a broken man and and he is so much more introspective than Arthur ever is. Um, And is so much more of a reflection of, of Arthur and the, and the, the, you know, the deeds that Arthur has uh, achieved and committed over the years. And so I think this movie kind of subsumed that character very subtly into its portrayal of Arthur as less of this kind of uh, body bold, oh, you know, permanently youthful knight uh, that we've seen that we see in every Arthur story up until he dies. And they've they've mixed him with this kind of broken, introspective man and I think it plays fantastic throughout the entire story, uh, you know, in the reflection of of, of the quote unquote, the kings, uh, you know, every time we see the impact of his reign throughout the story. But also, I mean, you say like he kind of eggs him on and, and he eggs him on to the, the quest, uh, you know, later in the film. But I get the sense like early in the film. He, you know, he give when the Green Knight appears in the court and Gawain rises immediately to the occasion to take part in the Green Knight's game. Uh, and then he says, I, I have no sword. And Arthur lends him, you know, Arthur, the king, lends him his own sword. It seems like, right, that would be the king pushing him towards this thing. But to me, it was less about that and more about the king as a character and his his introspection and his character arc right he wants to have some kind of positive like he he wants to have something to leave behind we get that he's old and he's decrepit and he's he's reaching the end of his life and that's why he takes an interest in going to begin with um and that's why he that's why he gives going the sword not to push him to do this specific thing, but to, to see what kind of man going can become and to see what kind of legacy he can leave behind. And I think we see in that scene where he gives going his sword 
and going, you know, jumps over the table and, and engages with the knight. And then the knight, uh, the green knight kneels down and offers his neck. And he looks back at Gawain, looks back at the king. And the king is not egging him on. The king is just kind of solemn because he sees the complexity of what, you know, the situation has become. And so I, I feel like we've drifted away from the point a little bit. But my point is. Well, no, you made the comment you know, about toxic masculinity, and I was just curious because. Like that—that that obviously is a presence, and he's, you know, he there's that—it's more present in their society. But I just found it interesting that like he was somewhat encouraged by the king, and but I didn't think that right. that that encouragement came, wasn't really toxic in nature. So in and of For itself, me, it came less like, from like the king itself and more just what felt like the like the code of the society. Yeah. Was yeah. Right. And and we get, and we definitely trust me. We get the sense that the king has has done some shit right like later in the movie when they when when Gawain is on his quest and he crosses the battlefield um and uh the scavenger tells Gawain, ah yeah the story is that the the king personally slayed 960 men here it's pretty clear who they're in, who they're talking about um and i think it lends a deeper credence to you know you get at that point you definitely get the sense like oh now we get why the king has is kind of in this miserable state right like that's what that's what his legacy is and and so you're right to a degree there is definitely this toxic masculinity that uh you know that underlies king the the king king arthur as a character but um you know i thought the 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 decision to portray him as somebody who is past all that and who is just searching for a legacy was was very uh, very potent yeah ben what did, what did what did you think about that i mean how the movie just handled that part of it and the pressures that gawain was clearly feeling so a, a few things um that i just kind of want to touch on just kind of uh, in, in in elijah's points there one, I really do want to talk more about the way kind of this movie kind of merge various kind of Arthurian characters together, specifically kind of Mordred and Morgan. Because I do think kind of there were some very interesting things about these almost kind of subtly Mordred qualities that were kind of thrust onto Gawain, especially in kind of the way he represents kind of the fall of the kingdom in kind of that future, in that like flash forward, we say. The other thing, and this is just kind of to the point of the the literal consequence of Arthur's battles. This movie made me think of the 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 novel The Buried Giant just so much, which I absolutely love and which I think does a really good job of striking the exact right line between kind of the mythic quality of Arthur and the historical quality. And if you look at kind of all of these beheadings and wars and and kind of brutal conquests, and you look at those as kind of things that led to the consequence of real people dying and thousands of bodies littering the battlefield. The myth doesn't really explore the actual consequences of that and what it would be to kind of leave that blood and carnage as your mark in the world. And I think this movie, especially in kind of the way we saw Arthur as somewhat decayed, did a really interesting job of kind of striking that balance. I found, I mean, first of all, I I love Sean Harris's performance, but so so touching. Like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, yeah. but like, <laughs> I was not expecting how beautiful that first scene was with 
with him and and, and Deb Patel is going right at the Christmas dinner and their their little interaction was like yeah so unbelievably like sentimental in a way that I was not expecting. <laughs> no, there was something just very sincere and what like whatever else the movie kind of layers on to Arthur or the king as a character there is a very real and earnest desire for him to kind of to see this kind of young man as his inheritance to, to there is an actual investment in seeing who he becomes. I, I, I definitely found it interesting kind of what they did with Arthur as a character. One thing I did want to circle back to as another moment of kind of this, the strange and kind of toxic codes of chivalric society is the moment with is it Winifred was, was Winifred the name of the woman? Yes. Where we're, we're kind of, at this point in the movie, we're kind of starting, we're viewing all the characters Gawain is meeting in the context of his quest, in the context of what it is taking for him to get to this end point. Um, and for the first time in the movie, really, he meets someone who is simply asking for his help. And she asks him to retrieve his her head um, buried in the lake. And his response is, well, what, like, what will you give me? If I do that, what will this serve in the context of my quest? And she just looks at him with this very offended and confused expression on her face and, and replies to him, why would you ask me that? Mm-hmm. And one thing I don't I, I think that the movie kind of almost treats in the periphery is the idea that a knight supposedly is someone who is meant to be helping people. Yeah. Like, what does it mean to be a knight? What does it mean to serve the people, serve the land? Are you doing things as part of this quest for self-definition? Are you doing things in service of, of your king? Or are you doing things in service of people who simply need your help? And I think if we look at kind of all of these different pressures that are laid on Gawain, I think this moment is for me the strongest example of one of these pressures is to simply be a good man. Um, and is this part of who you choose to become? And we kind of see that explored later with this kind of concept of shame and him carrying his shame with him. And what does it mean to kind of be, be what defines you? I think the movie even kind of preempts that even before the Winifred scene, right? This notion that Goyne views things transactionally, and that's his worldview as as a as a knight errant, as you know, somebody who's who wants to become a knight, right? In the very first scene. Uh, you know, we see him, we see Gawain wake up in the brothel and he has a brief, you know, flirtation with Essel. And then as he's chasing her out, he throws it like he throws coins at her to try and get her to, you know, come back. And, you know, we don't think much of it at that moment, right? Because we feel like it's a brothel. That's what you would expect from it. But we see him carry that mindset throughout the film. Right. And that's, yeah. yeah, And it's definitely, it's one of those things where it's like something that, that we take for granted. And I think something that probably is born of, uh, you know, Western media's relationship with Arthuriana, but definitely, you know, has been, uh, magnified through the presentation of fantasy, especially in things like video games, right? Like we, 
as a society think of things like quests where it's like we you go and accept this quest from a person and it's like okay we're gonna go into the woods and kill five boars and come back and you're gonna give me five silver pieces and it's like that that is a direct descendant in in terms of philosophy from this you know from this kind of traditional arthurian view of what a knight is supposed to be and I mean, I think movie. it predates Arthur, too. Again, it, if you it, look oh, at like, totally. most yeah. old, like, kind of older mythological traditions, like kind of something I jump to is the Odyssey, uh, just as kind of one of these like or mythological texts. Every character, every kind of step along Odysseus's way, all of the characters he meets, with arguably one interesting exception, represents either an obstacle for him to overcome or someone who will present him a reward that will serve him in continuing his quest. Yeah. Every single character, and I think arguably the most interesting possible exception to that is when he stays with the Phaeacians. And Nausicaa, rather than kind of, and who arguably does represent someone helping him along the way, offers him a way out rather than kind of a way forward on the, on the quest. Like rather you like stay stay with the Phaeacians. Cersei too, but that's a whole different thing. And there is something about kind of the people on a quest being there solely to serve the quest and kind of a heroic adventure that I do think is is very much a part of Arthurian tradition, but it's a part of a lot of other mythological traditions. And there is something about the the way the movie both presents that aspect of the worldview, but also does attempt to kind of step outside of it and comment on it in that it does kind of force us to kind of see kind of the strange transactional nature of 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 those depictions i agree with everything i agree with just about everything you guys said to the extent i to the extent i've read whatever you guys have read I've, i'm more familiar with the odyssey than the other uh, than the other things you mentioned but uh you you jumped ahead a little bit ben to the uh, to the winterford thing because at, at to that point we hadn't even really talked about the quest itself yet and i was i, I, and, I and i was curious because like i was going to ask you guys and like one thing I thought it really did really well, and we, we already talked a little bit earlier about, like, how it was going to, like, you know, uh, weren't sure how it was going to strike that balance between, like, you know, being, like, you know, really action-packed and being something, like, you know, um, you know, m- more in the vein of, like, something like Ghost Story or whether something just, like, slower in that we were going to expect. And we sounded like we all kind of agreed it, it walked whatever line that was uh, very well. And one, one thing I thought was kind of funny before I get to ahead was, like, as someone that hadn't read the source material there, there there's the moment where it's a pretty cool shot early on when he's when he's kind of encountered um uh he, he's encountered uh barry keoghan in that in the group of scoundrels basically or thieves or whatever you want to call them and they've already kind of tied him up and uh the and and left him for dead and at one point the camera pans away from him gowan and then comes back and he's a skeleton and then it does another pan around and it comes back and he's fully there and you know, not that it was what they were – and I mean, yeah, maybe they know that someone might not really know what to expect. They haven't read the source material. But as someone who had it at one point, I was like – I took that at face value for like the, the five seconds that we thought he was a skeleton. And I was like, oh, like 
I'm 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 on this journey with David Lowry and I guess he's dead and I'm totally okay with that. Like I I don't know where this is going, but I was like ready to go there. You know, even if like we we'd already been kind of introduced to Gowan and thought he was like a very interesting character. Like I I, I didn't know what this I I didn't know what this story was. I thought maybe we were gonna kind of pick up with another character or something. And I was like I was totally there for it. So I don't know what that says about the movie that I was like willing to go wherever that would have been. And because it, it's more than a fake out, I know that has more intentions than just being a fake out. But I want to point out that like. I was so already in on this whole thing that like I was down to go down that path that that was the path. And all of a sudden it wasn't that, but I, I mean, I'm kind of curious because like, you know, uh, there's a, there's a certain point and I think it's, I mean, that, that is its own little kind of moment in the film, but it's like, I think at this, that it's its own kind of obstacle. Like Ben was talking about earlier to have him kind of like go through them. And, uh, I feel like the movie, almost it, it takes on another quality in, uh, it's, I don't know if it's I don't I don't I don't even know what the right word is. If is it surreal or is is it is it surrealism? Is it fabulism? What is it when he all of a sudden like because the next the next kind of part of his journey at that point is when he like is when he kind of encounters Winifred and that's its own different thing you know where like that's that's that that's taking on its own kind of I don't know if it's a fantasy element of the story but like it's someone that's not alive uh, and I'm curious what w- what you guys thought is the movie kind of like made its way to that point in the quest because like. I was like, for a minute, I thought I was going to be thrown off, but also at that point, I'm like, I am here for anything that David Lowry wants to bring my way, and I'm like, I am like, I was like along for the ride at that point, and like, not as thrown off as I maybe would have been if like, uh, I hadn't like had that realization when there was the scene where it looked like he was a skeleton. I'm like, all right, I'm I'm down for anything at this point because I was like, this could be a turn, and I'm here for it. Oh wait, that's not the turn, but like, I don't know. It felt like the movie like that like almost that moment prepared me the more naive viewer to be like ready for anything and i was like here for it so i'm kind of curious like uh what what did you guys kind of think about just how uh gowan's trek kind of un- uh, revealed itself and i don't know if elijah if, if some of this is some of what i'm getting at is some of the parts where he maybe shirked the poem and did his own thing but what did you kind of think as you saw him kind of intertwining these different genres possibly yeah i mean so Something that is lacking from most Arthuriana is interiority of characters. If a character is thinking or feeling something, it's very much externalized. There's not a lot of, there's not typically not a lot of subtext, especially in, in traditional matter of Britain. You know, in, in newer Arthuriana, there is obviously more modern literary, literary conventions that the people abide by. But in, in this poem, uh, you know, at the very least there's, there's not much. So, what I took it as, and you know, based on what I felt the visual language was communicating later on, was that was a way to show the interiority of Gawain in those in in moments like that. Um, they use that circular camera trick later on in the film uh, at the ending sequence, which I'm sure we will talk about later. But absolutely, um, <laughs> fucking you know, incredible. So to me, you know, I saw that as 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 an externalization of what Gawain was feeling, which was this this total existential dread that if I don't do something, if I don't if I don't channel this angst against the universe into something right now, I will be a skeleton and the world will grow over like there, you know, there there were, you know, fungus will grow on my body and I will not, you know, not, nobody will remember that I was here uh, and that eggs him into action it it eggs him from being a scared kid tied up and you know screaming to rolling forward and 
you know, injuring himself, but cutting his, you know, cutting his bindings so he can move on with his quest. God, in a way, that was like um, that was almost the goriest moment of the movie. In a way, where you're seeing him just like slice his hands. Surprisingly, there, there wasn't like a lot of other blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will say I actually had a very different read on that moment from you, Elijah. Hmm. Okay. Um, what the thing that kind of struck me about kind of his quest in general is, we know that supposedly this is ending with him going to kneel down in front of the Green Knight and get his head chopped off. Again, supposedly based on like what the rules of the game are. So there is something ultimately fatalist about this, and there is something absurd about, in his quest for self-definition, Gawain is marching off to certain death, um, at least from his perspective. And there is something almost absurd about that, and that you almost want, like, you, you almost wonder when he's going to ask himself, what exactly is the consequence of stepping outside of this quest is there some like is it just innately absurd for me to be watching walking towards this certain pointless death right and, and what, what so, makes it different there versus at the green chapel later on yeah right and so there's this moment of him lying on the ground as a skeleton and to me it was less if i don't complete this then i might as well be dead and to me it was more this is already who he is. He is already carrying his own death with him. And I do think there is kind of this idea in medieval tradition of people carrying their own death. And we see that in kind of a lot of medieval art and kind of representations of people kind of walking with death. Um, do you think do you think he thinks it would just be a more honorable yeah. death to like at least be able to see that thing through, though? I mean, that's part of just the motivation in and of itself is like, I, I well, can't go would, out like but this. Also, but what, what would the consequence be of him... And this is actually something interesting, and I do want to talk more about when we get to the ending. But what is the consequence of him choosing not to be this knight? Like, who who could Gawain be if he is not this knight? Is there a path for him in life that, again, could result from him just stepping outside of this, deciding this is not who I want to be? I may not be the knight to throw himself away on this foolish almost certainly doomed quest are we led to believe though like it's a pretty empty life that there is an alternative but it's the life he's living up until the green knight walks into the court that's the thing though i do think the movie gives us alternatives or gives him alternatives well he also doesn't realize that necessarily he thinks that his life before the quest is somehow different than what it would be when he becomes a knight at the completion of his quest even if we may deep down recognize that it it's there is no difference but i think you know for me i felt like there was a degree of denial in his behavior on the quest right and this notion that you know does he really believe that going to the green chapel is going to result in his death and i mean when we talk about the green chapel sequence we can talk about all the little intricacies of that but i felt like there was a sense that throughout the story right he feels like maybe there's a way around this maybe it's not really what it appears to be you know when he leaves he leaves uh, when he leaves camelot when he leaves you know camelot quote unquote the castle he leaves in such high spirits right because he's on his quest and because his mother gave him this belt that you know he believes will protect him yeah. um against whatever might befall him on the road or at the green chapel and then he loses that 
and things get bad and he panics and things, you know, he has to kind of rebuild his journey from the ground up. But when he goes into the Green Chapel, he's still going in there with a sense of, okay, maybe there is a way around this. Maybe there is something else to this. Um, I, I, I absolutely agree. But I think to me that felt less like absolute denial and more like this almost dual consciousness. That's fair. There was, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Where there's this part of him that like is absolutely certain that this like it's it's kind of like the Kierkegaard binding of Isaac thing on um, you are going to in, in, in the Kierkegaard's depiction of the binding of Isaac. Um, you, like you, I'm always playing on names. Abraham, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Abraham has bound his son. He knows with absolute certainty that he is going to kill his son. He is going to commit the act, but there is also this absolute certainty that despite this thing that he knows he will do, and that will be the natural consequence of his action, somehow through this, his faith, this will not occur. And it's those two absolute beliefs that almost ex- exist together. Technically yeah. speaking, one of them has to be wrong. Either his son dies or he doesn't. Either Gawain uh, is beheaded or he won't be. But there is almost this, There, both of those exist at the same time. And there's this inability to kind of reconcile them. And so somehow, even though they can't be, they're both true at the same time. The gestalt Gawain, mind. Yeah. Gawain will place himself before the Green Knight. Gawain will submit to the rules of the game and Gawain will die. At the same time, somehow, Gawain will complete his quest and Gawain will live. Somehow. Somehow both of these things, I like for me, the character has both of these beliefs simultaneously. And that's what's what's interesting. It's not it's it's the denial, but it's also the acceptance. Yeah, I, I I can see that. You know, I'm I'm I you know, well well I guess we will in a in a few minutes I guess we'll we'll jump ahead to the end because like I mean I think there's that there's there's, there's like a, there, there's yeah there's so much going on in that even I mean even before the 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 ending ending sequence is when he's actually at the Green Chapel like there's 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 like so many ways to read that and I and I re- I, re- I read a lot about that actually and a lot of the different things that like went into Lowry's decisions to do that I think I think it's uh I mean I, I think it's pretty interesting to talk about I guess I can. Uh, get your guys' thoughts on like the the rest of the quest, and then we can uh, uh, jump ahead to that. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I feel like I had a harder time uh, wrapping my head around everything that went on in that castle. So I was curious to like <laughs> kind of kind of ask ask you guys about that. Like that was that was. I mean, I, I thought. I mean, it's only been two days since I saw the movie, and I've like thought a lot about that, and I've still like had a, had a hard time wrapping my head around that. So I, I guess I guess I'll ask you first, Elijah. Um, I mean. Was was that something that was like because uh, that feels like something where like Lowry probably played around a lot with beyond what was on the page with respect to the poem. Less than you'd think. Really? Well, yeah, certainly certainly a little bit less than you'd think, but it's a big departure in terms of later context. I don't know how much we can spoil it. I mean, I guess do you want to drop your spoiler alert? Here. Yeah, I mean, spoil. Yeah, I guess spoil. Yeah, we actually already talked for. Geez, it's already been forty-five minutes. Yeah, we we gave him plenty of content. That's not really spoilerly, and without even giving away the ending. So yeah, go away and come back. I think you can tell we all like this movie. Uh, but I I I I, I want to get some of our uh, my, my friends' thoughts here on things that like might be considered spoilerly. So uh, we obviously recommend everyone go see this movie and then come back and listen to the rest of this discussion. So uh, Elijah, as you were. Yeah, I'm about to spoil a seven hundred year old poem too. So <laughs> but um. 
Yeah. Uh, so right, everything that happens in the in the the estate is pretty 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 par for what's what's in Goin in the Green Knight. The difference comes that at the end of Goin's quest at the Green Chapel, uh, the same kind of encounter happens night where the green knight goes to strike him and going recoils and then going uh, you know going uh, the green knight goes to strike him again and going recoils again and the green knight kind of starts to taunt him and then going admits that he was wearing the girdle uh and that it, it wouldn't have been fair and he takes it off and in the story then the green knight brings the axe down and it's just a little like bonk on his neck kind of thing. And then the green knight reveals that it's the Lord, that he's the Lord from the castle. And the, <laughs> the, the entire thing is a, is an illusion, you know, conjure, not an illusion, but a, a, a plot, uh, conjured by Morgan Le Fay, who is, uh, you know, Arthur's evil half sister. And she's living at the castle as like the, as the Lord's mother, and it's it's it gets very you know I don't want to say goofy but it gets much more <laughs> I was about to say it gets much more marvelly I think that's even more offensive. It's kind um, of the farce ending. Almost. Exactly. Yeah, it's it, it is almost farce. And then you know, going returns to Camelot and admits to Arthur that he was somewhat dishonorable in his presentation to the Green Knight, and Arthur forgives him, and they all live happily ever after. Um, so what happens in the castle is fairly accurate. It's just that it is then divorced of all later context, which I thought was great because the later context is kind of irrelevant, especially to the story that David Lowry specifically is trying to tell. Well, what's also interesting is it's not theoretically like incompatible. Like right. there is yeah. a version where who knows, like seconds after the movie ends, it could be revealed the Green Knight was the Lord after all. It doesn't. It doesn't matter though. But I like the fact that technically that that reading of the story is possible. But we don't need to see it because it's not part of the self-contained movie that Lowry is giving us. And and yeah, and to me, I felt that Lowry tapped into a really potent understanding of that estate, of of the Lord and his household, as a kind of like a dark reflection of Camelot a place where the chivalric ideals of Camelot are sort of bent to their limit and flipped and inverted in these ways that uh, make, make the viewer and make Gawain uncomfortable, right? He goes here and the lady of the house is a promiscuous woman who makes unwanted advances upon him. When you, and you said like, it's kind of an inversion of, um, Right, and it's played played by yeah, and she and uh, you have the same actress playing one of the the role, you know. Right, exactly, and it's just an inversion of the whole concept. That's a that is a relationship that in traditional Arthuriana, if it was a man uh, doing that and a woman, you know, with the advances being made upon them, it would be normal. It wouldn't be considered strange or uh, you know grotesque. Um, you know the 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 lord of the house is kind of decrepit in in a in a in a in a way that is um sort of opposite to arthur's it's not a it is not a physical corruption it's a moral corruption there was a little bit of weird gay coding that i didn't really love but i i do think that it was sort of 
it wasn't necessarily, I don't want to say mean spirited, but I don't think it was like intentional in that regard. I think it was, uh, you know, Ben, you, you're nodding. Maybe you have a different so take on that. One but. thing I may have missed this, but in the movie itself, did we ever hear him call Vikander his wife? Well, you know, I, I didn't remember hearing that in the movie either. And then I just he calls read, her I read the about lady it. of the house. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the lady of the house. He never calls her his wife. Yeah. Which yeah, is something I, that I I found really interesting. Like, again, knowing the, the original story. She more, she, she's more clearly the wife in the poem. Yeah. Okay, but okay. In, in this, it's like it, it, it is possible to read like, again, text like we're we're meant to sort of understand them as, as man and, and wife. But there is a reading of those characters that is almost kind of like they're they're less man and wife and more just kind of these almost like tarot figures who just happen to be living in the same house. Yeah, um, that was that was kind of how I read it because like the and, one and, thing and, I really and that's why kind of the queer coding bothered me less. Right. Yeah. Um, and like the 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 audience I was with had one hell of a reaction to that kiss, but. <laughs> um, um. But yeah, no, it, it it bothered me a little less because like it wasn't like it, it it just felt like that character was more sincerely queer than anything else. Right. And yeah, that's maybe that's fair. It's maybe maybe it's not necessarily good to view them, you know, Camelot and this estate and the people therein as diametrically opposed so much as just inversions in a way. Arthur is is, you know, their afflictions aside, but there is uh, Arthur is kind of stifled in this. Uh, the structure, right, of of his world and of his values. And to a degree, right, he, Arthur has a kind of strange relationship with Guinevere in this movie. They don't really, like, touch. We see them later in a vi- in the in the vision at the Green Chapel. They're placed at opposite ends of the bed. Um, so maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's a better way to look at it, is less that it's like a queer-coded villain and more like, he the the lord of this estate is is living his reality in a more honest way than arthur ever could um there's that but also again we meet these characters and basically in the context of a game they like they are playing a game in the same way the green knight is playing a game the idea of returning gifts and and all that i do think that there is some degree of kind of a connection to arthurian chivalric code there but to me it's less uh this is kind of it's it's arguably sort of a dark reflection but it's also more this is already what this is and and i I actually thought that sequence as a whole did a really good job of just kind of threading the right line between like sinister and alluring like vikander's performance in that sequence i thought was incredible um her little monologue about the color green that was (laughs) fucking excellent you are no knight. <laughs> um, but no, that ent- that entire sequence, she plays that with, there's like this degree of something sinister, but almost more in the quality of something like the Fae, something that is strange and otherworldly and sinister in the, con- in, in, in the context of this is not something that we can understand, but not necessarily malicious. Um, and that otherworldly feeling just it kind of suffuses that entire sequence which i i thought was out divorced even from kind of the film itself i just loved that entire sequence i thought it was it was fantastic um and i love the fact you mean you mean the with her the scene with her and him specifically 
I'm talking. No, I'm talking about that the entire the sequence at, at the Lord's Manor. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, no, uh, like I. The the, the 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 scene with the two of them like was the one I kind of got that 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 I got I got more than the rest of it and that yeah. like I and that like I kind of understood how some of his values were being tested but like I and I guess like you guys are saying like it's maybe they didn't change it that much from the poem but I was like I was more a little at a loss for like how a lot of the rest of what was going on there especially with the blindfolded woman I was I was having a little trouble following some of that myself so that's why I was curious to kind of get your guys take on all of it you know. Sorry, were you, I I, I kind of interrupted you, Ben. I wasn't sure you were gonna make another finish your point, but I was. Yeah, I mean, well, it's fine. I think with the woman specifically, there was a lot of very overt like tarot imagery in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the, even the idea of kind of his portrait being inverted there. Mm-hmm. Like I I'm I'm not as well versed in kind of like tarot like kind of a meaning of tarot as, as some people, but there is like something very specific to the idea of a card being inverted and the fact that we we almost kind of revisit. I, I may have missed it. I mean, this is in, in kind of the, the big, like, end sequence. Um, we kind of revisit the image of his portrait that's right side up. I forgot. Was, was that meant to be the portrait itself, or was it just him looking like he did in the portrait? I think it's supposed to be the same one. I mean, it's okay. definitely visually very similar. It's, it's in, inverted the right way up in that sequence. But, yeah. right, we've seen it in its original form. So there's a whole visual language to unpack there right and it's like well in the vision it's the right way up because that's it it's upside down but it's that's the right way up in that vision in that world you know that's the the inverted fate that awaits him seen from the right perspective it would have been really crazy if they did that entire sequence upside down but that's getting into like gaspar noe territory and that's not like we're, we're not doing i mean that look we, we we did do that climax podcast um that's right we did yeah wow Two and a half years. Fucking time has gone by very fast since we did that. Yeah, I know. We're not even going to talk about time, given the last year and a half. Um, One year hence. (laughs) One year hence. Yeah, no. um, I thought kind of the woman, and I'm, Elijah, you would know better than I, was she meant to be uh, Morgan Le Fay in in the original story? I forget. Yeah, in the original story, the old lady of the manor is Morgan Le Fay. Yeah, because we do have that one moment of him dreaming of being, I guess, caressed by his mother. Um, and then he wakes up and the old woman is standing nearby, I believe. Right. Which, um, you know, there's there's a whole thing there, because so in the in this movie, his mother is Egwene's mother is just referred to as mother, but she is portrayed as being magical. That's that's um, something I, I mentioned earlier that I did want to and, circle back to, because there and, is kind of some conflation of like Morgan and Mordred onto Gawain. Um, where his mother is kind of this almost magical Morgan Le Fay-esque character who we're not given clear motivations with her, but there is seemingly some desire that I read at least for her to see things progress to, as we see in the vision, um, a grim end for Camelot. That may have just been my read. Like I, may, I may have just been bringing on to that the fact that I was seeing her as a Morgan character and I was kind of reading that like external motivation onto her. But yeah. the well, idea that we, I mean, it, we didn't see if if we read Gawain as a Mordred figure, we did not see Gawain kill Arthur. Gawain did not kill Arthur. But if Gawain is to be Arthur's inheritance, he is the one who leads Camelot to ruin. And so there is almost still this idea of him as the one who kills Camelot's, who who kills the dream of Camelot. 
Well, right. If because he carries his mother's sash with him. Right there. And you, you mean, you tapped into that. You, we referenced Morgan Le Fay and Morgan. So this is, this is one of these weird things where, you know, the matter of Britain is so like large and sprawling, but it's like, um, so, uh, Gawain's mother is, is in the original story is Morgaus. Yeah. And perhaps contrary to popular belief, it is Morgaus that actually gives birth to Mordred, not Morgan Le Fay. Mm-hmm. But the two characters are so frequently, especially in later, uh, you know, Arthuriana and modern Arthuriana, they're so frequently blended into the same character. And we very rarely ever see Gawain at the same time as we see Mordred. Like Excalibur famously blends the two characters together. But Gawain's not a character. In well, I mean, in the same way that Excalibur and the Sword and the Stone are very often conflated together. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so that, yeah, that was definitely interesting to think about later on. Is like, is the way that so it kind of shirks the whole like idea. It's like, oh, the woman in the house is Morgan Le Fay, and she's playing a trick on Arthur kind of thing, and more focuses on well, Gawain's mother is Morgaus, and she also gives birth later on to uh to Mordred. And so you're I think you were right to pick that up, uh, Ben, that that there is definitely a sort of blending of Gawain and Mordred together. And I thought that was really interesting. I mean, like it's a very it's a very interesting take on those characters because you so rarely ever see them together. Like you rarely ever see their their worlds collide, but there is so much to investigate between the two like Gawain and Mordred as characters because of how weirdly parallel they are they're both favored sons in a way one destined to be a great knight one destined to destroy Camelot um and it's it's a very interesting parallel in the way that the movie uses Gawain's mother the nameless mother in this case as somebody who kind of spells this into existence, it's not, it, it, there are so many levels to read it on. You can read it as pure myth and you can also read it as her as a character. Is she just trying to do what's best for her son? Is she intentionally crafting him to destroy Camelot or is she, is she just a mother kind of looking out for her son, trying to make her son a worthwhile person, like a worthy a worthy person. So I thought there was like a whole other angle to look at about mothers and sons that the movie like touches on and definitely inquires about, but like does not give you a whole lot of rope to play with. And I was like, that's fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I appreciate the fact that there is no reconciliation of, of those questions and, or most of the other questions we see in the movie. Yeah. Um. Again, this is not a movie like, and that's something interesting about, I think a modern understanding of myth to me that I kind of find frustrating. The idea that myth is just meant to be about a moral. Myth is just about meant to be about teaching a specific lesson. They're cautionary tales. And I don't think that really holds true with a lot of what makes mythology as special and captivating as it is. There is something, there is something instructive about it, but it almost goes goes beyond that into something be again beyond the world itself the world of myth is something 
almost impossible and as a result to kind of try to reduce it down to a simple textual lesson you're turning into something smaller than it is and and i think with this movie if it just it ended with uh, like a, a very easy reconciliation of even just kind of the 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 farce ending of the story if we did see the green knight take off a mask and reveal himself to be the lord in the manor it would have made everything we've seen feel smaller and triter and less kind of infinite than I think the movie we got actually was. One thing, and this is this is a small thing, and that I did kind of want to talk about. How did you guys feel about the title cards? I actually quite liked them. I thought to some degree they they pro- they provide a different kind of context for the story but they also sort of shape your interaction with with things that are happening on screen right um the film is addressed as a chivalric romance in the title cards and it's like that kind of frames how we look at the story but then it's almost intentionally playing with that and i think a lot of the times that was the case for me is what i noticed was like the title cards almost intentionally mislead and there is there's a fun there's a nice degree of humor there but also just um there's and it operates on a level of critique of the source right how oftentimes these these poems these epics uh you know kind of lead us down a certain path with our understanding of things, whether or not that's really what we should be taking away. Um, I just, I, I liked them. I thought they were, they were an interesting affectation in relation to, to the way that the rest of the story was being presented. I mean, I, the, kind of the reason I asked is I will say for me, it was one of the rare moments in the, like the rare elements of the movie that felt a little too cute. Like, for me, it kind of felt like this is just this. I mean, not enough to, like, in any way ruin the movie, but it was just one thing I wish Lowry did a little differently. Because for me, it felt like this moment of something from outside of the text reminding us that there is just kind of an outside of the text. Um, And I kind of, I I would have been interested in maybe him finding a way to kind of have the, and this isn't, like, something that he would have, maybe had to find a way to do find a way to kind of place those title cards into the world of the film itself rather than having them be almost this kind of like godardian like caption that's kind of appearing over the world of the film it's it's a small thing but i will say for me it was kind of just kind of that weird little kind of hand dragging on on, like hand pulling back on my collar as i was kind of walking forward with the movie I can get why you feel that way. I guess I didn't mind it so much because it, it, it probably just helped me get my bearings in a story that I, you know, at times was worried I was going to get lost in, though that never really happened. Elijah already kind of like explained a little bit what happens there in the in in the Green Chapel sequence and some of the distinctions from from the poem. But I am curious, like I even and I, and I did read a little bit about what was going on with some of the, the technical effects with the, with respect to the green Knight's face in that. I'm not sure if you guys read about that or if there's other stuff you wanted to talk about with respect to like how they executed that. And I don't know if I want to, I mean, I guess we can talk about the ending now and then work our way backwards. Any other points you guys wanted to make aside from that? Cause I'm really curious to talk about the ending because, uh, 
like you know a lot of times people talk about movies and they'll say like wow this they'll say like this movie had five endings and they'll mean it pejoratively and i and oftentimes like they're right sometimes movies don't really know when they're going to end and this is a pretty long movie it's like almost two hours and 20 minutes and it did feel like there are a couple points it was going to end and like there were a couple of those points before you got to like the actual ending where you have the whole entire sequence where you see uh what uh gowan's life might be like if he just runs away from the night and i god i was i was just i was freaking riveted um and that was I, like, I, I feel like i didn't breathe for like 15 minutes when it's like normally i i was like worried i was about to check out at that point at the movie because it felt like oh shouldn't this thing be ending at this point now and then all of a sudden he gives us like the most like 15 exciting minutes of the movie it feels like to at that point and i was like oh my god like i did not this kind of came out of nowhere and it and and i guess that was kind of like and from what i understand about the poem that like is kind of like showing what some of the actual the actual actual ending of the poem is and he obviously kind of goes in a slightly different direction there but like man it it just really it just really took my breath away what what what, what did you think when all of a sudden like we're just we're just like all of a sudden like not that the movie was like too slow like paced too slowly for me at any one point but it just it kicks into a different gear in a way that was like very surprising to me based on like where we had been so far like what did you think when all of a sudden like we're just right in the middle of like like just one of the like the just such an exciting sequence two hours and five minutes into the movie ben i mean it took me a second to realize exactly what was happening yeah but once it hit me i was just kind of spellbound for the entirety of it kind of not to go back to the odyssey because again totally separate mythological tradition but one of the things that i find interesting about the way people talk about the odyssey is the death of odysseus is not in it However, mythological, if we look at kind of the mythological traditions of Greece, we know how Odysseus dies. Years later, after the Odyssey, a group of roving barbarians lay siege to Ithaca. Um, and the captain of the pirates or barbarians or whatever you want to call them kills Odysseus. That leader, the, the man who kills Odysseus, is his son with Circe. That is the end of Odysseus. That is not part of the Odyssey. And I find it interesting that when we think of kind of these like singular kind of quest stories, there is always an after. There is always an after that we don't see. Um, and I was kind of looking at the ending of, of this movie, of this kind of kind of bleak future for Gawain as kind of something similar to that, the kind of the decay after the glorious quest. Um, and also this idea of him carrying his, basically the consequence of him kind of carrying his shame with him and him kind of living in cowardice, I found was really interesting. And I actually, I was, I kind of felt like the movie could have made two equally valid choices there, um, to justify the courage, uh, of accepting his fate. Or to kind of justify the acceptance of him being the flawed man that most are. And I don't know, that's something I'm still thinking about is what would the movie have been like if textually kind of almost sided with the other choice? So because he, I do think you could do a version of it that treats that ending very differently. Well, so how do you um, feel about the, how do you feel about the one we got then where they, he kind of he kind of lays them both out there and Lowry himself even called it his Sopranos ending? I mean, I love either. I, again, it's it's not to say that that would have been a better version of it because I love yeah. the version. Yeah, of it, yeah, yeah. I just found it very interesting that, again, you could have done two almost equally valid 
endings there. Um, and again, I, something I've talked about in this podcast before, and that I kind of alluded to earlier with the, you know, we don't see the after. We It's technically possible that, like, after the ending of the movie, the Green Knight takes off his mask and he's the old man from the manor. But it matters that we don't even have the potential of seeing that. Like, with a movie, everything we are given are the, the images on screen. There is technically a world outside of it, but kind of the questions of the reality outside of what we see, they almost don't matter. It's something we talked a lot about in the Burning podcast, where there are a lot of ambiguities there, and there are a lot of kind of readings of what exactly is happening in that movie that kind of you could give it. Like, what is the actual reality of these characters? But it almost doesn't matter, because we are given the images and the moments that we are given, and anything else is just outside the bounds of the frame. Like, kind of the the ultimate, the, the go-to example is kind of the ending of being there where kind of uh, Chauncey Gardner, uh, Pierce Sellers' character, kind of walks out until it basically walks on water. And Roger Ebert always tells the story of people asking, oh, well, how could he do that? Is, like, is there a sandbar that we don't see? Is there like some weird in-universe rationale for why it happens? And the point is it doesn't matter. The, the rationale doesn't matter. There is simply the image we are given. And with i think kind of an ambiguous ending of like in the green knight where we don't necessarily know what happens after kind of the quote-unquote sopranos ending what happens next doesn't matter there is just the acceptance and that is what we're left with yeah and i might even take it a step further and say that it doesn't necessarily matter um you know I, the the ending that i was reaching for was the ending to inception which i think you guys both know is not necessarily my favorite movie but at least one place where I found that I could take a stand on it was with the ending, because I got a lot of people always talking about it. I was like, well, does the top wobble? Does it is it falling over? Is it going to keep going? Is he still in a dream? And I think the point is that it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because at that point in Inception, Cobb has reached his it's he's reached his goal and he's made peace with it, regardless of whether or not it's a dream. It doesn't matter to him as a person. It doesn't matter to his character. And he wants to to live in that life, in that happiness. And I think the Green Knight's the same way in that, you know, we get this sort of playful, well, now, now off with your head uh, from the Green Knight and the movie ends. But it doesn't matter because of what had just happened before. He takes off the green girdle that maybe it wouldn't have done anything. Maybe the green girdle wouldn't have protected him. Maybe he would have kept it on and the green knight brought his axe down and fucking chopped his head off, you know, as happens in so many Arthurian stories. But I think the point is, is that it does not matter because in that moment, Goyne has made the decision. It's like, I'm at peace with this. Like he recognizes as a character, it's like, if I take this shame that or if i take this this cowardice if you will you know this um this dishonor with me and bring it home i do not like what i see happening in the future so i've made peace with that and i'm going to take this girdle off and whatever you know and come whatever may and so i thought that was a great choice for the ending there it's like it doesn't quite matter if we really know what happens to him because gawain doesn't care it's not that he, or maybe it's not that he doesn't care but he it's has accepted he has accepted what whatever happens and that's why i think the i think it's 
a great decision to end the movie there because we're following Gwen. We're not we're not following an abstract objective, you know, camera following this world. There's somebody said I remember somebody said on like a letterbox review, it's like uh, Dev Patel's really hot and he's in just about every frame of this movie. And it's like, yes to both of those things. And specifically to, you know, because Gawain really is in almost every frame of the movie because he's the one that we're following. It's his, it's his life and his quest that we're examining, not really anybody else's. And so you end the movie there because that's where his quest ends, regardless of whether or not he gets killed. Because that that moment, him taking off the girdle and accepting whatever fate happens is the end of that quest for him. And we don't need to see anything else past that because that's the moment that really matters. I agree. I I, I appreciate endings like that. And it's for me, it's just like, look, I, I get that this is informed by this whole entire journey that we've just been on. And, you know, if 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 you, you probably didn't appreciate everything that came before it the right way, if you really feel the need to have some kind of answer beyond him making that choice. And I and so I I, I kind of dug that he went there and he didn't feel the need to, like, you know, give us something more clear cut than that. Like, I mean, I, you know, I, I can talk all I want about, like, maybe like how I how I might have gotten a little more out of it if I really knew the source material well or I like follow this one corner of the movie better. But like I was just so there for the journey anyway. And I feel like I took in enough about what Gawain was going through all th- all throughout. And I, 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 I gathered enough through all these encounters. And while I while while I said earlier, like I, I didn't really maybe get his motivations for some of it at certain points, I, I it, it all clicked into place for me at that point. And I and I, I, I understood everything he was processing. And we didn't really talk specifically all that much about the performances. And I don't know if there's much to say. You guys already, you guys both praised uh, Alicia Vikander in that one scene. And uh, I don't, I mean, I, th- I think it goes without saying we wouldn't have liked this movie if we didn't like what Dev Patel was doing. I mean, there, there is actually one specific thing I do want to say about his performance. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, I, I loved him in the movie. It gave me a lot of hope for the type of career he wants to have for himself. And the two actors who kind of came to mind when I was watching it were kind of appropriately enough for the burning reference. Stephen Yun and more specifically Gail Garcia Bernal. Both well, of whom he's just killing it right now. I don't know if you saw old yet, Ben, but he's just killing it right now. <laughs> it's not super <laughs> high amount, to be honest. Um, but the, the thing I respect about both of those actors, and that I always kind of reference with Bernal specifically, is his willingness to take roles like risky and challenging roles in films that won't necessarily kind of center the intricacies of his interiority in the performance, but that are in service of bringing something strange and beautiful to life. Like kind of the movie, the two movies I go back to with him are Bad Education and Neruda, both of which are, I think, movies that are such unconventional choices for someone who could very easily be taking big showy kind of star roles that are maybe not necessarily the most flattering, but that are in service of a stranger and kind of more specific vision. Um, and the fact that as a performer, he is willing to kind of make himself secondary to the film itself. And I do think that The Green Knight gave me a lot of hope for Dev Patel as someone who is willing to kind of be an actor, who is willing to kind of take kind of the less flashy roles that help bring these kind of singular and compelling visions to life. Because I was really impressed by his performance, but this is not a performance that's going to win him a lot of awards. And I think he could very easily be taking 
big showy Oscar bait roles or big showy blockbuster roles. And I am excited by the fact that it doesn't seem like those are the roles he's chasing. Weird. I was, cause I said almost the exact same thing to Josh when we did the Minari podcast about Steve Yoon. Yeah. I said, like, I, I felt like Steve Yoon had this penchant for playing these kind of pathetic characters that are, that are so like raw in a way that's not, not necessarily like sexy or, um, and I don't mean that, I don't mean sexy in like a, you know, physical attractive way. I mean, sexy in terms of like Hollywood star power yeah, kind of absolutely. Roles. Um, and I thought that, you know, yeah, like his role in Minari was very much like that. And I would say the same thing about the Patel here, right? Like this is not a role that people are going to be like, oh yeah, he's the next Brad Pitt. Like, and that's fine. He's yeah. like, he, he felt so confident in the role regardless and so comfortable in it. And I thought that was great. Yeah. I also say that, um, I think given what you're saying about him and the kind of roles you're interested in seeing him in, I think you'd enjoy the profile that Kyle Buchanan did in the New York Times on him, Ben, because I mean, he he does talk a little bit. He does talk a little bit about some of the kind of the way he thinks about the kind of things he wants to act in and how doing. Uh, well, it's funny. I made the old joke, but he 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 makes like allusions to like you know being a little disenchanted by certain types of movies, and without saying it, he says like he's like talking about the last Airbender and saying saying how that kind of like uh, that might have shaped a little bit about what he was looking I, for. I did see like some reference to him saying kind of the last Airbender had like scared him off doing blockbusters. Yeah, um, uh, I was it wasn't sure what the context of that was. I just remember reading something about that. But. And I, I didn't even realize though until I actually just like pulled it up because I mean. And I I never really held it against him for too long, even though, like, I mean, I, you know, I, I hate watching all three seasons of the newsroom and maybe spending some time on like a uh, a lot of time on a t- on a TV show like that. Like maybe that made it. He hasn't actually been in as many movies as I I haven't seen him in as many movies as I thought I had. And he hasn't maybe done as many, even though he's been on the scene for 14 years now, uh, hasn't been in as many features as I realized. And I hadn't. I, so the only one I had basically seen, actually, I think since Slumdog Millionaire was uh, was Lion which I thought was a decent movie. And I, I, I so like, I, I, I guess I maybe didn't come into this with like as much baggage as like, I mean, I don't know, maybe some other people have that might've seen some of the other features he did that weren't as well received. But I mean, I don't know. I just, I just really, I, I just really dug it. And I, as Elijah mentioned, he's in like just about every frame of the movie. So it's like, if, if, if it's not a good performance, it's, we're not going to be talking about this movie as positively as we have. And I just, I really, I, I really felt everything on his face by the end of it and it, it all these choices that it's making at the end uh really really worked for me i don't know well, it's a fantastic performance it's yeah. just it's it's like elijah said it's just not a sexy performance well um, well except i mean except the internet's talking about it in a sexy way i mean i guess he's look, like he I don't can know if he's be like, sexy it's a physically sexy performance yeah, 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 but yeah, not yeah. a not a not an attractive <laughs> role necessarily yeah no i got I, but yeah but I, I think it's cool that he was drawn to it nonetheless and wanted to work with david lowry on uh on something like this um i, I mean i i i get we, i mean i'm glad we i'm glad we talked about him specifically a little bit um but uh i i, I did you have anything else you were wanting to add elijah on that ending because ben ben talked about it for a while but did you have any other did you have any other thoughts on that sequence or uh about just the how how they kind of one thing I don't know if you saw, and I, I still haven't totally processed it. I when I was reading though the um, long interview that um, David Lowry did with Joanna Robinson and Vanity Fair, uh, talked about how like you actually see a lot of the different characters' faces like in the Green Knight's face uh, during that final sequence, and um, 
I, and he, I, I guess that served a couple different purposes. And I, that was kind of what I had in my mind a little bit when I was referencing any kind of technical flourishes that might have been in that sequence, uh, just in the sequence in the chapel itself. But I mean, I didn't know if you were, if you if you had any thoughts on that specifically, or just like the whole entire like uh, sequ- sequence of leading back up to circling back around with respect to oh here's what the life would have been if he had just run away. I, I, I was just – I wanted to ask you about all that, Elijah, because I didn't know if you actually had a chance to comment or if you had any other thoughts that we didn't already touch on with respect to that ending. Yeah, I think – so as far as the Green Knight goes, I mean from – there's not much more to comment on yeah. really with the technical perspective of it. I mean I thought you know, design-wise was just phenomenally done. But I I think like as a character, it was such a great scene for the Green Knight. So like demystifying um, in a way that felt – felt Bergman-esque almost. It reminded me of, um, you know, the, I, maybe not the first encounter that Max von Sydow's knight has with death in, in Seventh Seal, but maybe not the first one, but maybe the second encounter that he has where they really actually kind of get to like talk and sort of get to, I hate to say like get to know each other, <laughs> but it felt kind of like that. There was sort of a, a matter of factness to the scene that was great. And also was so, it was so wonderfully like off-putting on so many levels. Like it's off-putting for Gawain, right? Like he's so weirded out by the whole situation. And then when the green knight goes to strike him for the second time, I think he says like, wait, is is this really it? Like, and I love, (laughs) I love, is Is this all there is? Like, I love the ambiguity of that line obviously he's talking about more than just the game. He's talking about life in general and death, you know, like there's no more pomp and circumstance. There's no magic to it. And I love how the great knight's response is like, should there be something else? Like it, it um, doesn't present the green knight in any way as a villain. Um, it's it basically, is, it's almost like a, I say force of nature, but I, I think he's just an element of the world that again, he like Gawain is not to not to interrupt you, Elijah. I'm really I'm sorry, but he's just kind of stepped into the rules of this game. He's encountered the knight, he's started the quest, and he's completing the quest. There is nothing good or evil layered on it other than the completion of the game. So we're not supposed to see it as like any kind of deceit on his part that like, you know, no one actually knows what the true nature of him as a person is, you know? As far as like he 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 he's he seems like he's actually amused in the first scene that like he doesn't act these people don't realize or the his his his, his opponent doesn't realize if he chop his head off like he's not actually dead like to me that I mean I I wasn't like dwelling on it I wasn't like oh that's not fair I wasn't like hung up on that but are we not supposed to like see him as like actually having some level of deceit uh, and like intentionality there I mean he told him yeah the blow will be returned yeah true. <laughs> yeah. And maybe only in the same way. I mean, I hesitate to say that the Green Knight is just a representation of death. I think that's kind of one-dimensional look at it. But I do think that element is there. And when I say Bergman-esque, I mean, I am referring to it in the whole, you know, the whole shebang. Like, I do think that to some degree, that's what that's meant to represent. Death is not, you know, we get so many portrayals of death in the Grim Reaper as this, you know, this looming haunting ending whereas in the green knight there's sort of this sort of ephemeral beauty like the green chapel is calming and natural it's it's the natural world overtaking the you know the constructed world uh the green knight is 
positioned in such a way that he's literally like at the end of the path. Like we followed going this entire time on roads and rivers and across land on paths. And he finally reaches the, the literal end of this path. I mean, like he gets into the chapel and he gets to the, 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 you know, what do you want to call it? The altar or whatnot. And like built into the wall is the green knight. And it's just sort of, uh, arguably a throne. Right. Exactly. Arguably a throne. But to me, just sort of, you know, it, it it is a kind of ending, and I mean, there's so much to, to look at right there with the idea, like this is the ending of the movie and the ending of Gwen's journey, maybe the ending of his life, who knows? But um, yeah, I mean, I with with the montage sequence, I'm not usually a fan of fake out endings. Uh, shout out to all of my friends who I dragged to go see my first R-rated film ever when I was 17 to go see a Oliver Stone's Savages with that movie's <laughs> bullshit fake out ending. Um, and, uh, you know, I, so I'm not usually a fan of that, but here it just made so much sense. And I, I touched earlier on the visual language of the kind of rotating camera. And they used that again in the final sequence. Mm. And I thought that that was another great usage of that to kind of, externalize that interiority for Gawain to to show you in a, in a way kind of what he's seeing or what he's feeling yeah i mean just the 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 portrait from the from the manor being there again but being right side up this time as if to imply that 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 is the route that he was going down it wasn't the inverted it wasn't the opposite anymore it was the it was the path that he was that he would have been following um and yeah, I just thought it was, I thought it was very well designed and in a way from an editing standpoint, I liked that it almost like kind of overstays its welcome. I I don't think it was like poorly edited, but I think to some degree it gets off putting towards the end. It's like, it's arduous to watch because I think to some degree at, at some point, you know, or at least really deeply want to believe that it's just a vision that he's going to just, you know, snap out of it in a minute. But it's like, it's so uncomfortable in just that. It's like, it's like this cavalcade of bad decisions and bad fates that kind of, that await him. And, and it's so it's, it, well, yeah, it's, it's, hard, it's, it's almost it's, hard to watch. Well, it's funny you say that. Cause like with, in it with him. Well, yeah. yeah well, exactly. It's, well, it's funny, Elijah, you said that too. Cause like, I mean, again, I was worried it was going to overstay its welcome, but then, like I said, I was like, oh, shit, it kicked into another gear. But in that interview I was talking about with Lowry, he said, I, want, I wanted to write an ending where his head gets chopped off, and that's a positive thing. That's a happy ending, and he faces his exactly. fate parade, right? and there's honor and integrity in that. But that doesn't mean he's dead, he's killed, he received a blow that he was dealt, and all is set right within the universe of the film, which I thought was, like, really cool and helped, you know, recontextualize it a little bit for me. I mean, I, but but it gets at what you're saying, where it's like, oh, this is this is this isn't fun what we're watching. Like, I we, we kind of want the other thing, which is him getting his head chopped off. But it's kind of a it's kind of funny that Larry found a way to get you there. You know? Yeah. You know, something I actually kind of flashed on um, is, I mean, we, you talked about kind of the visual language of rotation. Um, there is something very similar to kind of medieval tableaus in in the way that kind of that rotation causes the camera to track across the world. And I, I and, and I don't know, it, it, it kind of reminds me a lot of the way kind of like with like Mizuguchi uses kind of uh, 
long kind of tracking shots um, in Ugetsu as kind of a way to kind of replicate jet, like the, the look of Japanese scrolls. Yeah. So if we're talking kind of where that aspect of the look is derived from, I do wonder if that may be kind of part of the root of those choices. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that's portrayed uh, paralleled within the movie when he's at the manor and he sees the tapestries, you know, on the walls and we get these panning shots across those. And, you know, we're looking at kind of these scenes of maybe the future or whatever they are. But, you know, they there it's definitely there. I would agree with that. Yeah. All right, guys, we are bordering on this being like probably the longest non-Marvel movie podcast we've ever done on just one movie. So <laughs> you've been you've been very generous with your time. And we got uh, the I, Marvel I, movies. Let's keep going. <laughs> but I but, but so and uh, but uh, I, I want to give you guys a chance to like uh, touch on any other odds or ends or things we didn't already talk about that you wanted to make sure you you at least uh, mentioned or gave some uh, some brief uh, lip service to. Uh, ben, was there anything else you wanted to talk about? I, I, did you have thoughts on how cute that fox was? Were there was was there another? I mean, I guess there's a, there's a little more going on there, and you could probably talk for an hour about that. But uh, I mean, was there was, was there anything else you were really hoping to get to that we just didn't touch on yet that you wanted to mention before we uh, wrapped it up? I mean, there's so much cool stuff in this movie. Like again, if you can't tell, I really loved it at this point. Like, yeah. Spoiler: I really loved it. <laughs> the look of it was amazing. Vis- like visually, it just felt like such a free and like visually and cinematically exciting movie like lowry at this point again every movie is going to look different i'm just always excited to see him trying something new the location like, scouts did a good job yeah i mean also even like weird little things like the the puppet show uh as, as kind of this way of kind of showcasing that both kind of the the story of the green knight but also kind of the almost childlike absurdity of the the chivalric traditions that like surround gawain yeah, there's so many amazing like little things about this movie um one thing I do want to say mm-hmm. is it absolutely nailed kind of the heightened English. Mm. Like it never felt faux Shakespearean. It never felt um, just trying too hard to kind of be very kind of British and portentous. It actually felt very natural to the language that I felt it was attempting to place itself within the tradition of. Related to that too, I saw Lowry say that like we didn't even have the budget to go like with fully accurate uh 14th century costumes necessarily but we found no, a way to make I it actually work. okay i'm not gonna like go in a whole tangent about yeah. that but that's the thing i loved yeah like it felt like a depiction of again arthurian regalia that was new and almost inventive like the the look oh. of the crowns alone was incredible i'll, I'll go on a tangent about it <laughs> okay, i know we good. don't have a whole lot of time but that yeah, was my we, favorite one of my favorite parts yeah. of it is that is how much so i think I think I've talked to Ben about this before. I don't know that I've talked to you about it, Josh, but my favorite Arthurian film is uh, Eric Romer's Percival de Galois. Um, And that movie, what that movie does that this movie kind of, kind of does. And I really love it is that movie does not attempt to be historically accurate. Rather it attempts to portray things exactly as they're depicted on broadsides and tableaus like not in a way that is like okay we are going to authenticate this and make it real it is that dude's got a fucking halo on his head in this image we're going to put a halo on his head in the scene and that this movie did that I mean, those crowns with the halos, that's just a, that's the way that Arthur is portrayed in some in some of the more Christian broadsides, uh, some of the more explicitly Christian broad, especially the, like the ones written in France by like Chrétien de Troyes 
um, you know, when those were illuminated, those broadsides have much more saintly depictions of like the king and queen. And I loved that because I so uh, sort of a tangent sidebar when I was in uh, when I was in school, um, I studied under a guy named David Johnson, who is uh, a fairly preeminent medievalist scholar. Um, and his focus is actually on adaptation theory. And that's what I studied with him. And his I, I would say his crowning work is a paper called The Tyranny of Authenticity. And it's basically about this problem that Hollywood has where people will get so invested in making a historical movie uh, historically accurate that they forget to make a good movie. Um, and I think this film is a fantastic examination of that because we hear Arthur, Arthuriana, we hear King Arthur, and we think Middle Ages. And I think there's a feeling or an urge to say, okay, well, let's make it middle ages -y. the reality <laughs> is that king arthur most of the arthurian most of arthuriana most of the matter of britain was written in the middle ages but it's not written about the middle ages it's written about king arthur it's written about these characters in this specific world in this specific set of you know rules and circumstances it's myth and it does not need to exist in a certain time period it only needs to exist. And that's why Arthuriana is ripe for reimagining. George Romero did a film in the 80s called Night Riders, which is about a, a, a Renaissance fair going troop of, of motorcycle drivers. And it's just Lancelot du Lac. Like it's just it's just the story of Lancelot du Lac transported to the 1980s. And The Fisher King, you know, this excellent movie with Robin Williams from the 90s. Uh, directed by Terry Gilliam, yep. hmm? Terry directed Gilliam. by Terry Gilliam, written by Richard Legravenese. It transports the story of the Fisher King to 1980s, 1990s New York City. And it, the reason that all these things work is because they are not obsessed with making something historically accurate. And that's what I loved about this movie was that there was no desire to settle the myth in a reality it 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 approached david lowry approached this movie as a hundred percent myth from the beginning and did not attend he he st you start the movie in that world and it never tries to to make it something that it's not it the movie never says it even happens in the middle ages we just assume it does because that's what it looks like but the reality is it could be anything and I thought that was, you know, going to the costume design, going to the set design, there was a, it was so light on its feet because it did not have this attachment to make things real. It only had to make them look right for what it wanted them to be. And there, there's a freedom and a beauty to that. And I thought this movie embodied it perfectly. Ben, it's, it looked like you had something you wanted to add on to that. I mean, again, I just wanted to start like just, hallelujah during elijah's whole spiel there because i totally agree with every word of it the one thing i do want to add on in large part because i've been trying to get elijah to read this for a very long time so i can plug it to like him and everyone listening at the same time there's a comic out right now called once in future uh by kieran gillen who i is basically my like lord and savior that basically it, it kind of transports a lot of kind of 
Arthurian myth into kind of modern Britain, but it treats it at basically as almost Arthurian myth as the, the shambling corpse of, of, of old Britain and the attempts to kind of use the old myth as a way to kind of capture something traditional and almost kind of isolationist and very kind of Brexity. Um, and the, the comic itself is amazing and Kieran Gillen is like just a, an incredible author, but it does some really interesting things with kind of this very dark but strangely accurate version of Arthurian myth, both as myth and as something grounded in the the texture and history of Britain. Um, and there's a whole spiel about the way like British mythology and kind of like mythological traditions are grounded in kind of the history of Britain and kind of the various kind of eras of of like the Britons and the the Saxons like the Anglo-Saxons and kind of the way those stories are kind of layered onto the history like this whole thing about how Beowulf uh like Grendel is actually a representation of like the Britons who were basically like the Welsh who would kind of lay siege to the the Anglo-Saxons from like the swamps whole tangent I'm not going to get into mm-hmm. but yeah, uh, read read once in future, and I agree with every single thing Elijah just said. And I think we'd all agree that everyone should uh, watch this movie. I mean, it just uh, you know if uh, look, I, I we 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 kind of already mentioned in passing a lot of the other David Lowry stuff, and and um like some of the stuff we did mention, like Old Man and the Gun and Peach Dragon, like uh which were two of the ones we did talk we, we we touched on like they're also obviously adapted from other stuff and as this one kind of is but like i i mean look in, in, in a way unlike those movies like i felt like i was watching something like even more original even if it's like from like more well-known and can has different parts of its source material been adapted and other things like i don't know it just felt like very singular and i and like you said like you said light on its feet and like like he was really doing his own thing in a way i really respected within like a very very obviously like old and well-read story and i really respect his vision and i think people should go support this movie i think it's going to hopefully do really well like i my, my theater put it in way too small of a room like it was uncomfortably crowded and it was like the first time since i've been back in the movie theater i sat next to a stranger um like I, I usually i can avoid that um but it was it was sold out so i hope the movie does very well and uh and it sounds like everyone liked it uh I this is the part of the podcast where I normally like have people plug stuff. Ben, you just plug something else. So I don't know if you have anything else you want to plug that you've been watching recently or uh, just a social media thing or anything like that. Is there anything else you want to shout out while you have a minute? Yeah, I mean, I'll try to be quick. Originally, when I came onto this, I was going to tell people to watch uh, This Is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection, which is maybe my favorite movie of the year, arguably with the exception of The Green Knight. Didn't it's that make your top movie. 10, Elijah? It made my top ten for last year, but yeah, that's then what I'm saying. I, 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 I was going to argue about what movie qualifies for later. Uh, <laughs> okay. About what year qualifies for later. It's amazing, but the movie I really want to talk about, just because we're talking about depictions of fantasy, yeah, is uh, Undine. Yeah, Undine. It's the most recent movie by Christian Pitzold. I think it's incredible. It basically treats uh, kind of the the story of Undine, which is basically kind of a woman who has kind of come on to kind of this this kind of old Germanic kind of mermaid. Uh, story um but it does some really interesting things in terms of kind of both modernizing it and treating the world of the the fabulism in the film as just truly magical but also placing it within the context of a very real modern germany um like it's arguable about whether it falls under magical realism because like sometimes people can get very technical about like what the bounds of that genre are but I would say is very singularly a magical realist film in a way that is 
special and beautiful and wondrous and strange um, in just the most inviting and alluring way. And Christian Pitzold is a modern master. Uh, Paula Beer and especially Franz Rogowski are two of the best like actors to come out of Europe in a very long time. Um, and it's one of those movies that I think people liked it. Like the reviews were decent, but I think just like Transit, which is uh, Petzold's last movie, it's going to be a grower for a lot of people. I need to watch Transit still too. I've heard a lot of people say really good things about it. Um, and that's what I've been meaning to get to. Uh, Elijah, anything you want to plug? Yeah. You know, what's also strange and unique and weird and, uh, and, and wholesome is, uh, the Suicide Squad, which drops, <laughs> drops on HBO Max uh, this upcoming, well, uh, it'll be Friday the 6th. I don't know when this podcast is going to drop, but Friday, August 6th. It's going to drop the day before that. Cool, cool. Then, then tomorrow, <laughs> Friday, August 6th, Suicide Squad will be out in theaters and also on HBO Max. Um, and I don't know about y'all, but I'm actually kind of looking forward to it. I've I've seen... A lot of good films that have been very heady lately and a lot of just bad films. Like I watched Tenet last night and God, that was disappointing. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of excited to just have like a film that is so, going to be pretty wait, good so, and be kind of brainless. So you, the, the guy that's always the the Warner Company man that does a good job plugging all the Warner things, didn't watch, oh, Tenet, until, didn't watch Tenet until a year after it came out? <laughs> uh yeah no <laughs> i'm sorry i couldn't i couldn't bring myself to, to spend two and a half spend two well yeah that but also couldn't bring myself to spend two and a half hours watching christopher nolan's colonoscopy so oh, okay uh fair, fair <laughs> enough i i hey anyone go back and listen to the podcast i did on it with my friend nick who is a huge nolan guy and neither of us had too many uh great things to say about it uh as far as me i'll say two things one uh one of them will be quick but first i'll say i think i don't think i talked about it on here a movie that i saw over a month ago now with ben was sparks brothers which i really enjoyed and i think it'd be a, not that like it really has a lot to do uh subject matter wise with annette which comes out in a few weeks that uh ben's going to join me to talk about but the, the sparks brothers themselves uh russell and uh what's the other guy's Ron. name yeah russell russell and ron mal they they wrote the the, they wrote the movie kind of uh, Annette that's coming out. And I think, uh, look, I mean, the Sparks Brothers is a fun documentary in and of itself made by Edgar Wright. Um, and, but like, I, I just think it'd be, a, if you like, think you like music documentaries or if you even just like want to just have a good time. Cause I'm not a huge music guy and I really had a fun time with that movie. And it'll be kind of weird to like actually get to know these guys for like two hours and 10 minutes and then see what sounds like uh, it's going to be a fucking bonkers movie in a net and be like, Oh, those musicians like wrote that movie. It'll just be a, I, I highly recommend it just in and of itself. But if you think you might want to see a net, which is trailer dropped a couple weeks ago and is coming out actually pretty soon. Uh, I think it'd be like a, it, it'd just be an interesting thing to watch going into that. And it's good on its own merits too. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, not that I'd give it like the strongest, strongest recommendation. I just saw it today. So I'm still processing how I felt, but I liked Stillwater more than I thought I was going to after I saw the trailer, which just looked ridiculous. And, I was like, I was like prepared to really not like it, even though like I love Spotlight and I like Tom McCarthy movies in general. I think I, my expectations were very low, especially because it looked like Matt Damon was going to be playing some like redneck Oklahoman dude, and it just thought it was going to look really goofy. And it wasn't actually like quite what I'd brace myself for in that regard. I thought it was a better performance, though. I do have some issues with the story. I don't know if I'm even going to do a podcast on it yet, but just if anyone had seen that trailer and they wanted to support Tom McCarthy, but were worried like I was. I think it's probably still worth seeing but i'm not gonna give it the strongest recommendation it's just it was a goofy ass trailer and i wanted to like let everyone know that it was better than the trailer was if nothing else 
Yeah, I that, that's about it, guys. Uh, thank you so much for being generous with your time. I, I feel like I'm cutting you off, even though you're the ones being generous at the time. You guys probably could have talked about this movie for another hour and a half, and I, and I, and I, and I learned a lot. And again, you don't even have to have as much familiarity as with the source material as, uh, as Elijah and Ben do to get a lot out of this movie like I did. But I feel like I, I learned a lot from listening to you guys. So I really appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to you guys uh, coming back in the next few months. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Coming up next, I think – uh, I might do an I might do an episode I'm not sure yet on Snake Eyes because I told Daniel Lima I would do that with him but at this point I don't know if I'm gonna like actually have the time to do it or not if not the next episode will be on the Suicide Squad with my friend Nick who I just mentioned uh, did the uh, Tenant podcast with us last year but is like a big uh, um, DC guy so he figured it'd be a fun one to have him join for so you have maybe Snake Eyes definitely the Suicide Squad to look forward to the next couple weeks thanks again to Ben and Elijah for joining me thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.